Well, folks, we're going to go ahead and begin today. And our grandson's in the Christmas pageant. So we're going to end early. <laughs> I'm so excited. So uh, that Ann and I can get a seat closer than we would if we went as long as we usually go here. So usually we wind up sitting in the back of the sanctuary coming in late. So, um, you know, I told a story last week. I'll tell it again. Uh, you know, that after the fall of man in Genesis chapter 3, uh, the Holy Trinity and the heavenly host are gathered around thinking, what, what are we going to do? And the plan is to send Jesus, the Son, on a rescue operation to planet Earth and live a sinless life and pay the infinite sacrifice needed to cover the sin of humankind. And, uh, and so they bid Jesus off, uh, which is going to become the incarnation. And then the heavenly host say, says to the Holy Trinity, what if he fails? What if it doesn't work? What's plan B? And the Father says, there is no plan B. And there isn't. And uh, let's pray, and then I want to talk a little bit about that idea, there is no plan B. Then I want to go back and talk about something I talked about very shallowly last week, Gnosticism. I want to go into more depth in depth on that because you, you will not get the incarnation and the Christian faith unless you understand what Gnosticism is and how you should never get anywhere close to it um, and how the incarnation is j just blasts the heresy of Gnosticism to pieces. So let's, let's pray. And I think I'll ask... Pastor Paul to pray. No, I'm just kidding, Bo. <laughs> you acted like you're verbal over there. Maybe you want to pray for us? No, no, you, no, no, no I'm just teasing you. Just teasing you. Well, let, let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for the cool weather today. We pray for all those runners that they all would uh, compete, compete uh, and be healthy and safe on that 26.2-mile run. And we're thankful for our church sitting here in the midst of this great city. Please keep us faithful um, and to be a beacon, a lighthouse of uh, the biblical faith, the apostolic faith, the gospel of grace here in San Antonio and for regions beyond. Uh, bless our time together today. Use me in some small way to bring home the truth of the incarnation and why it is so important really as the lens to view all of life through. And so, Holy Spirit, guide us, keep me from error, and uh, prepare us to worship if we haven't yet today. And um, we, all, we ask all of this for your glory and in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, there is no plan B. Uh, in uh, fact... May I interrupt for a second? Sure. Everybody, please. Uh, I got 
Thank you, Tom. You know, there's a, a phrase in Scripture that's very interesting. Um, you find it in the Old and New Testament. I was going to do a ser- I always want to do a sermon series on this phrase, trace it through all of Scripture, but I never did. It's the phrase, before the foundation of the world. Um, you know, a lot of people think that man, humankind sinned, and then God kind of did one of these, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? Uh, let's come up with a plan. Um, no. God, before the foundation of the world, planned for Jesus to be incarnate and go to the cross and accomplish everything. You know, that phrase, before the foundation of the world, really hammers home the whole idea of the sovereignty of God. I like to say that uh, as Christians, we ought to affirm that there's no such thing as an accident. Well, wait a minute. If I get in a car accident on the way home, did God cause that? No, no, not necessarily. But there really nothing occurs in the world that God's not weaving, sometimes in a mysterious way, into his total plan for the fulfillment of his kingdom. So, like I said, there really aren't any uh, uh, accidents. John Calvin, in his Institutes of the Christian Religion, goes as far as to say that every path of every raindrop is carefully planned and directed by God. I found that very interesting when I was in seminary. and First I said, nah, that's, God's not involved in such trivial things. Wait a minute, if he truly is sovereign, then nothing is trivial to him. He, the path of electrons, and, uh, microbes, and everything, nothing is trivial to God. And so something as important as our salvation was not left a chance or a plan B. And I want us to take a look at a few times this phrase, before the foundation of the world, is used in Scripture. And then I'm going to talk about, go back and talk about a little bit more about Gnosticism. Then we'll look at some foreshadowings of the Incarnation in the Old Testament. So if you've got your Bible with you, turn to Ephesians 1, uh, verses 3 through 6. I'm going to go ahead and, and read these uh, just in, for the sake of time. Um, Paul writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him, when? Before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. And that verse 4, where the phrase, before the foundation of the world occurs, I think I told this story when I did my lectures on Reformed theology. Ligon Duncan, who we had here a few weeks ago, president of Reformed Seminary, to preach. Ligon and I were in India together one time with the Lausanne movement. We're both U.S. advisory delegates to that. And we were talking about, sitting around one day, talking about election. And he said, you know, Ron, I'll tell you a funny story. I grew up uh, in South Carolina, and my mother's mother, my grandmother, was a Southern Baptist. And she was scared to death that I was being raised in a Presbyterian household because she felt that Presbyterians didn't believe the Bible. So she said to me one day when I was about eight or nine, 
uh, ligging honey. I want to have a Bible, you and me to do a Bible study together to make sure you understand that the Bible is the Word of God and should be believed. He said, great, I couldn't wait to do this with my grandmother, so she chose Ephesians. So our first meeting, we went through Ephesians 4 and read through it and talked about it. And at the end, she said, now, Ligon, honey, do you have any questions? And he said, well, grandmother, um, you skipped over verse 4, um, where it talks about <laughs> we were chosen before the fact. And she said, well, Ligon, honey, you know, we just don't believe that. And he's sitting there, I'm eight or nine years old. My grandmother's concerned I'm growing up in a Presbyterian household that may not believe the Bible. And then she's skipped. So that's kind of a humorous story. So we all tend to do that if we're not careful. But notice that um, not only were we ch uh, chosen by God before he ever spun the first atom of the universe off his fingertips, but that's all a part of this plan that God had laid out. Um, then if you turn to Matthew 25 and look at verses 34 through 40, we find that phrase occurring again. Matthew 25, 34 through 40. Listen, listen to what, uh, this is Jesus speaking. And he says, Then the king will say to those on his right, Come you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. I'm not going to read the rest of the passage, but, you know, the fulfilled kingdom of Jesus, which is our eternal destiny, uh, that kingdom was prepared, not just prepared before the foundation of the world, prepared for you and me as our inheritance. Then 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 19 through 20. This is what the apostle Peter writes. He says, But with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead. So here you have this idea that Christ's death on the cross was something. His precious blood shed for our sins was planned, all part of the plan from before the foundation of the world, before Adam and Eve ever turned their backs on God. Then the last book of the Bible, Revelation 13, verse 8. Here's what the Apostle John writes. And all who dwell on earth uh, will worship it. That's the beast. Everyone whose name has not been written in the Lamb's book of life. When? Before the foundation of the world. I just did a Bible study with young adults in Indonesia um, by, via Zoom. And... Um, that's one of the things I, I really wanted to get home to them, that if you're a believer, it's, you didn't wander into the Christian faith by accident. You didn't stumble into believing in Christ. Uh, 
your name, if it's in the Lamb's book of life, and your name is there if you're a believer, that was inscribed not when you accepted Christ. According to Peter, there, your name was written before the foundation of the world, before creation ever came about. God already knew who you were. He had planned for you to be a part of his creation, and he had already chosen you and written your name in the Lamb's book of life. And that ought to give you and me an assurance that our salvation, our eternal destiny is sealed. It's not up for grabs, not at the whim of fate or chance. Uh, this is part of God's sovereign plan from before the foundation of the world. Then lastly, John 17, verse 24. Um, again, the Apostle John writes, Father, and this is Jesus speaking, Father, I desire... Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. We talked last week about how love is eternal. Faith is not eternal. We will not need faith in eternity. We will see God face to face. We will not need hope in eternity. Faith is, or hope is faith extended into the future. We will not need hope because the hope is fulfilled. That's why Paul says the greatest of these is love. Because love is eternal. Love has always been. You know, I, I quoted that James Weldon Johnson poem last week called The Creation. It's a great poem. The theology is wonderful, except in the first line where it says God looked out in space and said, I'm lonely. I think I'll make me a world. That's bad theology. God has never been lonely. He did not create the world because I'm lonely. I want all these people. No, there was always the Trinity and the love, triune community of love between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So there's always been love. Faith is a latecomer and hope or latecomers to the game. That's why the greatest of these is love. But um, so the incarnation, you see, is not an accident. It's not a plan B. It was part of God's sovereign plan for the world before the foundation of the world, according to Scripture. And so I hope that gives you an assurance of your own salvation. Now, I want to go back to something I touched on last week. And I think this is really crucial to understand the incarnation and to disabuse us of a lot of stuff that's going on in our lives and in the church and Christian, Christian world in general. Um, let's talk a little bit more in depth about Gnosticism. Gnosticism is a Greek way of looking at life. You know, we're, we think like Greeks. The Western world thinks like Greeks. Unfortunately, or not unfortunately, the Bible's not Greek. The Bible is not Western. It's Oriental. Uh, it's written by Hebrews. They don't think like Greeks. And uh, Gnosticism comes, you can trace it back to basically Plato. And the basic idea is that what's really important in life and in the world is what is spiritual. Um, you, the, the whole idea of Platonism 
uh, eternally is that you want to get rid of this yucky body, finite, fallen, sinful body and be free. Your spirit would be free. And how many Christians do you know who think that's what heaven's like? That we're going to be free of these bodies and we're going to be these spirits floating around plucking harps and in some ethereal uh, existence, you know, floating on some kind of cloud or something. None of that's in the Bible. Uh, that's, that's Gnosticism, this idea that what's good is spiritual and material is bad. In fact, hardcore Gnostics would say the whole material universe is bad and was created not by God, but by a demigod. That seeped into the early church. The early church missionary movement was into the Greco-Roman world. And so a lot of Greeks and Romans became Christians, and they had a hard time letting go of their Platonism and starting to think like Hebrews, starting to think biblically. And so the Christian church from the first century on has battled this whole idea of Gnosticism, that what's important, supremely important, is spiritual, not physical. That goes totally against Scripture. Remember I said last week, God creates the material universe. The main philosophical question is, why is there something rather than nothing? And um, the Greeks would say that, well, matter was probably eternal and some demigod designed the earth, but what's important is spiritual. The Bible's clear that at one point in space and time, there was no materiality to the universe at all. And that God spoke and matter came into existence. Interestingly enough, all of the current astrophysical studies show that uh, the Big Bang Theory, basically that is saying, they're saying now, that all matter can be traced back to a, time, a pinpoint in time and space. Before then there was nothing. So St. Augustine, who really hammered out the doctrine of creatio ex nihilo, creation out of nothing, and who was laughed at after the Enlightenment, so-called Enlightenment period, but now the current scientists are saying, he was right. Um, so how does God look at what he created? How does he rate it? He says it's not only good, but very good. And there's nothing in Scripture that indicates that God ever changes his mind about that. He's wildly in love with materiality. That says something, or ought to say something to you and me, about how we look at the world, how we look at our bodies. Um, I don't want to steal my thunder. The last lecture I'm going to really get into what that's going to mean for us in eternity. But um, there's just a couple of things that, that ought to hit home for us. Number one, that uh, the Bible knows no concept of a human being, a whole human being, whose spirit is separated from their physical body. Again, that's a Greek concept, not Hebrew. This idea, there's nothing in Scripture that indicates that you and I will spend eternity as a spirit. Everything in Scripture, again, I don't want to steal my thunder, but um, we're going to be very material beings. So when God comes into time and space to rescue humanity, 
He does so by actually taking on the materiality that he created. The word became flesh, carne, meat, and, and, and dwelt among us. And that material body that Jesus has is, is not bad. God never says the human body is a bad thing. He never says the trees and the mountains and the rivers are bad. It's good. And the whole idea of salvation, we tend to get a Gnostic concept that creeps into the Christian faith is the idea that salvation is primarily about God saving individual human souls. If you read Romans 8, Paul says that's not what it's about at all. I mean, it's, that's a part of it. But he talks about the whole creation groans as if in the pangs of childbirth, awaiting its own redemption. A full-blown understanding of salvation, what Jesus did on the cross, was not just to cover your sin and mine, but something cosmic happened on the cross that's going to culminate in the salvation, the recreation of the entire material universe. That's what's on God's mind, not just saving human souls. And so, um, you know, you've got an early Christian theologian named Marcion. He bought into Gnosticism, and so much so that uh, he said, we need to throw out the Old Testament. That Old Testament God is a God of vengeance and judgment, and it's the God that created matter, which is bad. And so we only should look at the New Testament. You know, I have some Church of Christ friends. Uh, well, I'll tell you a story, true story. First time we lived in San Antonio, there used to be a newspaper called the North Side Recorder. It was thrown on your front lawn. It was free. And they had a column every week by a Church of Christ pastor. Now, you know, there's the Church of Christ, and then there's a Church of Christ. And this guy was a Church of Christ pastor. And he would take questions and then answer them in this column. So I'd, I'd read his column every week. Sometimes it was really interesting. Somebody wrote in one time and said, um, is it true that you don't have musical instruments in your church? And he said, yes. And the reason is because there's no warrant in Scripture for them. I'm looking at that, and the first thing that pops in my, my mind is Psalm 150. You know, praise him with the lyre and the cymbals. And the, so I wrote him a letter. It's back before email. I wrote him a letter and said, um, what about Psalm 150? Blah, 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 blah. And I didn't know about the Church of Christ much. So I said, what's your problem? Do you not recognize the authority of the Old Testament? And he wrote me back and said, no. Actually, he put my letter in his column the next week and said, no, we don't. We don't recognize the authority. That, now, I'm not accusing the Church of Christ of being Gnostic, but I always wondered why they, they don't count it as authoritative. And, uh, and he said, the New Testament gives no warrant for any musical instruments, da da da. So I wrote him another letter. I said, I've read the New Testament many times, and I've driven by your church. You've got a church building, and you've got uh, parking places, and you've got air conditioning. And I don't see anything in the New Testament that warrants that any of those things. That letter didn't make it into his column, nor did he write me back on that one. I don't remember his name. This was 
35 years ago, you know. But, uh, now, Max Lucado, we've had him here at First Press. He's Church of Christ, and he would say we're saved. Oh, you know, I, I did have a con- another conversation with that same pastor, Church of Christ. Um, I said, is it true you don't believe I'm saved? He said, you're not. I said, you don't even know me. How do you know? Because you're a Presbyterian pastor. That means you've not been baptized in the Church of Christ. And I said, well, let me tell you a little bit about me, blah, 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 blah. I came to Christ at a Billy Graham crusade when I was 10. I'm born again. I'm washed in the blood. I have a personal relationship with Jesus. And he listened to all that. And he said, but you have not been baptized in the church of Christ. And I said, that's the kicker. Huh? That's the key thing. Yes. So I said, what if I believe what you said is true? And we scheduled my baptism for this Sunday. And I got hit by a truck on Saturday. Where would I spend eternity? He said, without flinching, in hell. Ooh, church grass. Um, <laughs> anyway, you know, I remember reading an interview with Arthur Sproul back in 1994. Interview it changed my life. They asked him, what, what are two things you tell young pastors? He said, the first thing I tell them is, preach more from the Old Testament because you cannot understand the New Testament unless you understand the Old Testament. And that's one of the dangers of Gnosticism. They throw out the Old Testament. And the other thing they said, uh, Sproul said is, I teach every, I tell every young pastor, to, don't preach with notes. I saw that and he went into all the detail why. And from that day on, 1994 till I rewired, I stopped, I write out, write out a full manuscript, but I, leave it in my chair in the chancel, and it's kind of scary. Um, but I would never go back, never go back, never go back. Let's talk a little bit about the current implications of Gnosticism. It's alive and well in the church today, unfortunately. It's never gone away. Um, and it's in our culture as well. Have you heard people say, I'm spiritual but not religious? That's pure Gnosticism. You know what religion literally means? Literal definition? All it means is connected. When a person, I used to be anti-religion because I, I thought religion meant all the forms and rites and you know, all that kind of stuff. And I'm not religious, I walk with Christ. You know? That's not what religion literally is about. It just means connected. Uh, there are no lone, lone ranger Christians. So if a person says, I'm spiritual, but not Religious means I'm a lone ranger. Um, I'm not a part of the body of Christ because body implies being connected. So it's a very Gnostic kind of idea that I can go it alone. And all that's important is the spiritual, not uh, the physical. Um, A lot of Christians spiritualize their Christian lives. Like I'm doing spiritual stuff because today's Sunday, so we're here. This is spiritual. Um, but the rest of my life is not. That's a compartmentalization that the Bible knows nothing about. The reality is that God is just as interested in what you and I are doing at 4 p.m. on Tuesday afternoon as he is with what we're doing right here or when we're in the sanctuary. So be careful about spiritualizing your life and, you know, the lordship of Christ means 
somebody said, he's either Lord of everything or he's Lord of nothing. And so you can't, um, you know, there's a story uh, told that when the Constantine forced, when he became a Christian, he, he forced the Christian religion on the Roman Empire, and especially upon his army. And he mandated they accept Christ and be baptized. The soldiers felt that if that happened, they would not be good fighters anymore. So they would go in immersion baptism and they'd hold their sword hand out of the water uh, in hopes that, yeah, baptize all of you except that part. Well, we have a modern variation of that. A lot of Christians go into the baptismal font, pull out their wallet and hold it out, you know. Uh, I'm going from preaching to meddling, sorry. But uh, that's spiritual, you know, money. What's spiritual about money? Everything. Everything in life has a spiritual dimension to it. How you spend your money, how you spend your time. Um, do you look at your job or your business as spiritual? There's a guy in our Thursday morning Bible study, remember here, John McKenzie. He owns a remodeling and home fire, water damage thing. And he gave me his card on Thursday. On the back is a prayer. One of my elders in Baltimore is the guy who invented the knee and the hip replacement. Dr. Dave Hungerford. He was at Johns Hopkins. He just died a couple years ago. I remember him handing me his brochure on, there, on the brochure. And he's the foremost orthopedic, was, foremost orthopedic surgeon in the world. The Saudi family would fly him over there and whenever they needed a hip or a knee or something. And uh, on his brochure, he puts at the end of it, he says, I am a follower of Jesus Christ and just want you to know, I'll be praying for you before, during, and after your surgery. And he says, that, Ron, that's all I say to him. I don't do a hard sell or anything, else, but I want him to know. My orthopedic surgery is ministry. Do you see your job as ministry? Do you see your business as ministry? Um, if you don't, you're, you're being Gnostic. You're saying, well, that's not really spiritual. No, um, that's a compartmentalization. Um, sacred space. The Bible makes clear that we don't have to have that sanctuary to worship in. We don't need a church building. We can gather out in the street under a tree. And yet there is something about sacred space, or even your posture as you worship. C.S. Lewis, in one of his, book, in, uh, his book on prayer, he talks about, you know, the Bible doesn't say you have to pray a certain way. You can pray. In fact, the Bible says it gives three forms, postures for prayer. Standing, uh, kneeling, and laying uh, pr I always get these words wrong. Prostrate. <laughs> so what do we Presbyterians do? We sit. The Bible doesn't say anything about sitting. But Lewis makes a good point. He said, you don't have to pray in any of those postures. God's going to... But he said, try getting on your knees and pray. And it's different. Different. There's something about the physicality of kneeling before the Lord that changes everything. Um, 
in that sanctuary. Think about it the next time you're in there, 1909. How many sermons, weddings, funerals, baptisms? How many people came to Christ sitting in those pews? I know some people who came to Christ sitting in that sanctuary under faithful preaching. There's something sacred about that that I don't want to just throw away. You know, when we were having the recent unpleasantness and leaving our former denomination, I never thought a bit about it, and no one else ever said anything to me about it until we were out. And then I thought, my goodness, the columbarium. I wonder why we didn't talk about that, because heck, if I'd want to leave <laughs> all of our brothers and sisters who've gone home to the Lord, leave them behind. So, of course, they'd be okay if we did. It's not going to affect their eternal destiny, but there's still something but that physicality of they're here with us that I don't want to dismiss. There's mystery to all this. Um, here's a great way to think of your life in terms of what you do, what you're called to do, uh, and to make sure you're not Gnostic. Think of yourself this way. I am a fill-in-the-blank computer programmer, banker, lawyer, truck driver primarily in order to be a minister for Jesus Christ. That's the way you and I ought to think. That's, that's good, holistic, biblical thinking. That'll keep you from being uh, Gnostic. Um, one more thing, and then we'll get into um, some Old Testament foreshadowings. I'm going to go from preaching to meddling again. What about the environment? Now, I'm not a tree hugger. I am a former research scientist, and I read all that stuff. I read on climate change. Notice they're not calling it global warming anymore. There's a reason, because the earth is cooling down. Um, is today different than yesterday, climate-wise? Yeah, it's nice and sunny yesterday. Look at the, There's climate change. You know the old Texas saying, if you don't like the weather, give it 10 minutes. Climate change all the time. There's a great book, and I can't remember the title of it, but it's by a Christian a geophysicist, and he talks about how there, I think there's 34 locations around the world where they do these drillings. And I mean, they can, they can track the climate over periods of millions of years. And there's, the book goes on to show how there's always been climate change. Um, the question is, what's causing it? I agree. There's climate change. Some of it's detrimental. Uh, but what's causing it? The book shows how probably sunspots and El Ninos and El Ninos and all that stuff. Um, a million years ago, if we were sitting here right now, we'd be under 200 feet of water. What happened? What changed that? Fred Flintstone's little cars? Did, no. Somebody sent me a, a clipping from the Washington Post um, in an email this week, and it laid out uh, how er all the ice is disappearing in the Arctic, blah, 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 and you get to the end of it and go, whoa. Then the date on it was 1922. A lot of the same stuff we're saying now. Now, I'm a Christian. That means I know who made the, all the matter, and I know this from Scripture, that you and I are accountable to the Creator for how we treat the environment. 
Uh, one summer in college, I worked as a roughneck for Texaco offshore of the coast of Louisiana. And I remember there all these signs on the rig saying, don't toss anything overboard. And then we were instructed by our driller, just throw the trash over, and old bags of drilling mud and everything else. And um, that's not good. That's not good. But I did it because I didn't want to be fired. I preached from the pulpit of Highland Park Prez one Sunday. Earth Day fell on a Sunday. I'm not a topical preacher, but I thought, I'm going to do it this one time. And the congregation kind of laughed about it. And I said, I'm going to wear my scientist hat in the first half of the sermon and my pastor's hat in the second. And I laid out um, that climate change is real, blah, blah, blah. But then I put on my pastor's hat and I said, okay, whether you believe it or not, we are responsible to the creator. We, you know, human beings ought to know better than to foul their own nests. And we, I mean, the Hunt brothers remember my congregation, Hunt Oil. And I said, that means we ought to drill uh, for oil in the best environmental ways we can. I knew those guys, and they just chuckled at me. But um, I think we, Christians, ought to be in the forefront of the environmental movement, not worshiping the environment, but worshiping the Creator. And we're going to be held accountable, folks. And I'm, so I, I try to recycle and all that kind of stuff. Um, and I think that's a part of not being Gnostic. Because uh, if all, only the spiritual is important, then you might think, well, then we can let the creation go to you know where in a handbasket. No. God is still in love with his creation, and you're going to see in the last lecture what that's going to mean. And you're, you're going to really like it. Well, let's shift gears and uh, take a look at what you might call a foreshadowing of the Incarnation in the Old Testament. Um, if you'll turn, turn your Bibles to Genesis 3 and look at verse 15. Okay, God's created the earth. He's created all the animals. He's created humankind. And you've got Adam and Eve. By the way, and a side question here, were Adam and Eve two historic human beings or are they figurative Metaphorical. I believe they're historic. Why? Jesus believes they're historic. Um, and all the latest science in the whole area of uh, DNA and chromosomes, here's what the scientists are saying. It appears that you can trace all of humanity back to two individuals. Which raises an interesting question for Darwinists. Okay. How many eons of random collisions of proteins and amino acids does it take to make a male? But how many more eons would it take to make a female? What's the chance of that happening? Um, so Darwinism's on the ropes, folks. And so, follow the science. It affirms everything in Scripture. So anyway, Adam and Eve turn their backs on God, you have what's called the fall. And uh, look at one of the, the outcomes of this, what God says. Look at verse 15. Um, this is God speaking to the serpent. Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, 
and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. Then verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your, offspr your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Who's God talking about there? Who's God the Father talking about there? He's talking about Jesus. He shall bruise your head. Christ shall bruise Satan's head. This is a foreshadowing of the crucifixion, but also you can't get crucifixion without... You really can't separate incarnation from the entirety of Jesus' life, or especially from the cross. You know, I always like to say there's a shadow of the cross hanging over the manger from the, the beginning. So you get this foreshadowing of this coming incarnation of someone who's going to bruise Satan's head. Then if you turn to Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. It reads, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. The increase of his government and of peace, and there will be no end. And the throne of David over his kingdom, on the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it, uphold it with justice and with righteousness. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Hallelujah. Yeah. Here you have the foreshadowing of the incarnation right there in the prophet Isaiah. And then another prophet, Zechariah, chapter 9, verse 9. It's toward the end of the Old Testament. It says this, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Of course, that's an allusion to, the, uh, to Palm Sunday, but also it's, again, the coming of a Messiah. I could go on and on. Um, let me do one more. Isaiah 7, chapter, or verse 14. Isaiah 7, 14. In fact, you know, the whole Old Testament sacrificial system is a foreshadowing of the incarnation and the supreme sacrifice. If you read the Old Testament and really stop and ponder what you encounter in the Old Testament sacrificial system, it's really gross. Um, the priests are all decked out in white. And every day they're making these sacrifices. They bring bulls and other livestock and pigeons and all this stuff. And have you ever been, you know, like the meat department of H-E-B and gone in the back and seen the butchers? You know, they have white aprons and there's a little bit of blood on there, you know. Imagine what the temple was like when they're slaughtering all these bulls and it talks about dumping the blood on the horns of the altar. I mean, it was a, a river of blood. These guys were, it is gross. Why did God command that to be done? And these poor innocent animals, animals didn't do anything. 
And they're suffering and dying for our sin. I think for a couple of reasons, it was to show human beings just how awful our sin is. We tend to sanitize our sin and say, well, you know, I'm not as bad as, you know, Hitler or something. Um, on God's scale, yeah, you pretty much are. We're all in the same boat. Hitler's not in a boat over here, and I'm over boat over here because I just do white-collar crime. No. Um, we're all in the same boat. And the most sinless, you know, Mother Teresa doesn't deserve heaven any more than, you know, Genghis Khan. So we tend to sanitize our sin. We need to be reminded how gross it is and all this bloodletting. And yet it had to be done again and again and again and again. I can imagine the people then were saying, when is this going to stop and when will there be a time when we don't have to do this anymore? And that was getting them prepared for a time when that would come true. When that, the lamb who was slain before the foundation of the world. If Jesus appears and John the Baptist says, Behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And when Christ goes to the cross, it's a cosmic, you could take me outside and nail me to a cross a hundred million times and it wouldn't do what happened to Christ. It was a cosmic something that happened on the cross that was the once for all sufficient, perfect, infinite sacrifice because he was the God-man. It takes man to pay the sin of man. But man can't pay an infinite price. God can do the infinite. So this, the incarnation is God become flesh without becoming unlike himself as God and able to pay that, that price. So you can't separate body from spirit. Jesus, the spirit, becomes body. That's crucial for our salvation. But Isaiah 7.14 says, um, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel, God, which means God with us. I said last week, and I'll just say it again, you know, we talk about the virgin birth. Mary was a virgin. That's really kind of a misnomer. Um, when people say, do you believe in the virgin birth? I say, no. I do, but no, because Jesus' birth was normal. I believe the virgin conception. The miracle is not Jesus' birth. The miracle is when Gabriel appears to Mary and says, you're going to be with child. She's not stupid. She goes, I've never been with a man. How is this going to happen? Gabriel says, don't worry, God's got it under control. I said last week there's a great medieval painting of the Annunciation with the angel appearing to Mary, but then it shows a dove going into her ear, which is really good theology. Just like God spoke and matter came into being, at the Annunciation it was the Word of God, the Holy Spirit is the one that, through Mary's ear, her auditory canal, that's where the conception, that's how the conception occurs. God spoke and Jesus came into being in her womb. So it's a, a, a mini creation of the whole new universe. Um, so let's stop here. Um, as I said, I won't, I'm going to be in trouble if I don't stop because I've got to get to my grandson's appearance in the Christmas pageant. So um, I'm going to call a halt. And uh, next week we'll have some time for questions because I
I just sense that some of you have some questions. So I hate to cut that off, but uh, we need to get down to the sanctuary. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you that you've done everything for our salvation and for the restoration of the entire universe through what happened through the incarnation and then the death of Christ on the cross, his bodily resurrection, his ascension, and as we are waiting in Advent for his soon and certain return. And we pray, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. May that happen in our lifetimes. If not, keep us faithful till the day we die. But if you do appear in our lifetimes, may you find us faithful, watchful, and expectant. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.